0: Week 142. And y'all go, it's been that long. It's been that long. Goodness, y'all. The things that we can ponder in our brains, it's a wonder sometimes we can function. You ever feel that way? Like if we could just stop thinking about thinking, about thinking. For just a minute. We'd be in good shape. Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. We'll hear it again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we've done some work in this. We've talked about these things. We've looked at how to unpack this introduction. And there's so much there. And so by way of being redundant and mundane, I'm going to remind us of what we're looking at. We're looking at an uneducated man who is a servant of Christ, who is probably one of the most zealous of all the disciples, ready to roll Grounded in his masculinity, tough guy, and he's the one who denied Christ over and over again. And Christ restored him because that's what grace is about. The narrative of Scripture te- shows us that we are not able to affect righteousness or even a little bit of goodness in the context of this world in comparison to the righteousness of God. Yes, we can do good things. We can have a sense of righteousness as human beings as we define it, as we measure it. But as God measures it in true justice, in true righteousness, we don't measure up. Even when we do well, it's not enough. You see, perfection is not, I did it perfect this time. Perfection is without fail ever. Perfection is without delay Perfection is never late. Perfection means having never subjected our ideas to doubt. Perfection is impossible, and perfection is a plague in my life. And not just my life, yours too. Mine probably more than yours, but I don't know. We'll see. But when it comes to perfection... It is the greatest errand of fools that has ever walked the planet. Because even the two perfect people, out of one created flesh, came two. They could not keep it. Because part of the image of God in us is that we are inquisitive. We are knowledgeable. We can gain wisdom. We can think. We can reason. It's not just about our physical appearance. It's about the... Essence of who God is in his mind. That's why it's very important to understand that so that when we read what Paul tells us in Philippians to have this mind among you which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he gives an expression, an adjective uh, overview of who Christ is and what Christ did and what Christ could have done, but what Christ did instead. And so we see Peter, and Peter, he was a dummy. He was a shepherd. He was a smelly rat. He was one of these guys who, you know, I don't even know what profession would, would, would fit this today because we're in such a civilized world that even the grossest of professions, I mean, we can clean up, right? As a boy, I had some family who used to have livestock, cattle. I guess it was family. that was always out there. And there was some other family down the road that had pigs, and I don't care how you shook it. When you went into the pig pen, you were filthy. I don't care. You didn't just walk in. I mean, no guy in a suit put on rubber boots and walked into the pigsty so he could take a gander at his new baconator. Is that the one I bought? All right. No, that dude would have to bathe. when he got. I don't care if anything got on him. When you stood in the presence of pigs, you stunk. And the people around you stump, and the world around you stump, and the acres around you stump, and we lived miles away from the pigs, but every now and then when the wind would blow, we stump. Same could be true for chickens. But <laughs> So imagine sleeping with sheep, eating with sheep, living with sheep, tending to sheep, and not bathing but once or twice a year. You stink. <laughs> Peter had that profession to not only was it frowned upon as a low-life profession, but it was for the dumbest of dumb. Oh, you couldn't do that? Well, you can always be a shepherd, sort of, you know? And yet, look at this. Look at what God does with the humble and the lowly and the weak and the dumb. He made Peter a servant to the sheep of Christ, and to this very day... God ministers to us through a dumb shepherd and the very icon, the moniker that God of, the God of glory took upon himself in John chapter 10 to describe the essence of his absolute inner mind is that he is the great shepherd I mean does it matter if you're the bum of all bums does it really make a, does it really make a difference while well, I'm the king of the bums I'm the bum of the bums. That's not even the attitude that Christ had. Christ had the attitude of, I am the lowly of low. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be the least. You've got to be the last. And it's not self-deprecation. It's an attitude. You can't fake it, but for so long. You cannot pretend to be compassionate. You cannot pretend to care. Because then those triggers come out, and that, that stuff that's wrapped up deep inside your psychological profile called your brain and your mind and your thoughts... You'll That stuff will flesh out. You can run a rat out from under the house if you put a big enough dog under there. So here's Peter. And he writes to these Christians who are scattered everywhere. Remember? Don't ever lose sight of that, beloved. While we may not be scattered politically, and we, not, we may not be scattered Socially, in the context of having to be forced out, we are in many ways scattered. We are scattered because of the world that we live in, and it's, it is fractured. And it's fractured more today than it's ever been in my life. I can't say for you. And the worst thing that I ever tried to do in this, when I saw these pieces crumbling, is try to put together what I had, rather than just assemble the pieces of what I was given and build something else. I want you to think about that for a second. This is the essence of what Peter is writing to this church. It's not psychobabble, this is biblical. Peter's writing to this church who will never, to these Christians who will never have what they had ever again. They lost their homes, they lost their land, they lost their family, they lost their way, they lost their game nights, they lost their entertainment, they lost their singing together, they lost their loved ones, they were no longer able, I can't wait till we get back to the homestead where we can do dinner. No more dinner. No more dinner, no more, no more status quo, no more anything. I have a friend that lives in West Africa and he messages me weekly for years and little updates. Somebody came along in this village and took an aerial photo. He was so proud of that. He sent it to me. He said, this is where I live. What does your place look like? I'm not sending him an aerial photo of our place. Because the only thing I could say when I come back is, brother, I live in a palace on the top hill of the highest elevation of a kingdom that is rich where we spend $6 a cup on coffee and rolled up ice cream with monkeys I'm embarrassed you see and these pictures that I get of this guy and these children and these people in this village and every time they're sending pictures and they're smiling so big their faces are about to fall in half and I'm sitting there getting that going oh I got to go take the trash out oh. you see contentment I preached on that some months ago, and I'm going to go back and listen to it next week. Contentment is the centrality of truly resting in sovereignty. <clears throat> for me. <clears throat> Maybe something else for you. Here's Peter writing. And he's telling these people, "Hold fast and rejoice." And when man, we get into chapter We get into verses three, three through nine. It's going to soar. I don't even know. I mean, we might have to stop singing songs in between verses or something because this text, this text is power when we're struggling. This text is power when we're good, when we're doing well. And so as Peter writes, as the Lord writes through this servant, we're reminded of the servant for the servitude of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. We're reminded that we are whose we are because God has elected to love us. That the love of God is election. That's just a point. It's not about the nuanced theological things that we see throughout history. Let's get it this way. I married Robin because I chose to love her. She married me because she chose to to love me. And every single day that choice is put before us I will either choose to love her or I will embrace whatever frustrations I may have and milk them to a new narrative until I have no affection at all. God does not do that. Before the world was, he loved you. Before you were, he loved you. And he showed that love to you. He showed what that looked like through the giving of Jesus Christ, his son. And all of that's in these first two verses. These elect exiles. These royal priesthood. This chosen race. These chosen people of which you and I are a part of in Christ Jesus. And I don't know about you, but when we, we sweep out all the theological dust and we blow church history into the corner and close the door and stand in the outside air and start breathing in the grace of God, we are able to truly find, and I just say it this way, a spiritual euphoria that also rests on a foundation of truth. I know I do a lot of metaphors. I'm sorry. If I could have my way, my sermons would be nothing but poetry. And y'all be like, thesaurus in hand. (laughs) So here we see then in verse 2, according this you are who you are and where you are according to the foreknowledge of God. This is God the Father and His work foreknowledge. In the sanctification that is being set apart and declared holy by the Spirit are made holy by the Spirit, set apart with the Spirit. This is the work of God the Spirit. Unto obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling of blood, this is the Son and His redemptive work on the cross. And this is where we're going to be today, looking. Remember I said I was going to go into the Old Testament a little bit. I'm going to do that this morning and look at the necessity of righteousness in the context of the sacrifice of Christ. Because, I mean, every week we get together and we talk about Jesus. We, We embrace this. We sing songs about the love of God, the love of Jesus, the Lamb of God. So, we need never forget that Jesus died. We need never forget that Jesus did so because He loves us. And it was the only way. So here, as we'll see next week when we close out this introduction, we'll really look at the Trinity and its work and His work in redemption. But today, let's focus on this obedience and sprinkling by Christ's blood. So we come to see that we are loved by the Father. We are the chosen ones. We are saved by grace And peace has been multiplied to us and blessed. We are blessed in that way. We're approved by God because of Christ. And the Holy Spirit, through the declaration of the finished work of Jesus Christ, enters into us and works into us and illuminates to us the truth of Christ in such a way that we then embrace the teachings of Christ that we may follow after Him in obedience. Not because we are earning favor or we're fearful of wrath, but because we have been granted such a great love. and that was the last two weeks of sermons don't lose sight of it this letter is to be meant to be read in one sitting and then discussed for years don't think that just because 7 days have gone by that we're on a new subject we're not on a new subject this is not there's no such thing as topical understanding of a letter unless the letter itself is about topics So the centrality of Jesus Christ in salvation, his role in the transformative journey of faith, this is the focus that we're going to be on today. We're going to see that the sprinkling of the blood of Christ and what it means and why it's important and why it's fundamental to understanding everything that we're going to see in the rest of these two letters. Because if you think about it, obedience To Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, you have grace and peace multiplied to you. And then we start to see all of these things. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions. As he's holy, you will be holy in all your conduct. Let's just keep on going here. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. And I've focused on love a lot and will throughout the rest of this teaching. And then we get some poetry, we get some psalms, we get some Solomon, and then we get some more instruction. Put away malice. Put away deceit. Put away hypocrisy. Put away jealousy. Put away slander. You know that's inclusive of the mind? Put away those thoughts. How? Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into the salvation if you have sorely tasted that the Lord is good. And we see it over and over. Abstain from the passions of your flesh. Be subject to the human institutions that God has ordained, like the emperor. Be subject to your masters. Be subject to one another. Be subject to your husbands. Be subject to your wives. Be subject to your parents. Be subject to and we get over and over again. And I've already said this and I said this last week. A lot of abuse and pretext has created what we would call formal, unquestionable theological application. Well, I spent years doing research and applied study to understand how to apply doctrine and theology. And I thought I knew what I was doing until the last three years. (laughs) So we're learning together, brothers and sisters. Obedience, as we've learned, is to illustrate and to reflect and to mirror Our thankfulness to mirror the essence of what we understand has happened for us and to us. And the symbolism now that we see in the sprinkling of blood, it connects the Old Testament. It connects the imagery. imagery. What that means, the word that we use for that is called illusion. It looks back to something. We see it in John's writing. We see it all the time in Paul's writing. It's everywhere. Jesus does it constantly. And for us, it's a look back, but to them, it's a look at. Because we have misapplied the Old Testament's uh, authority by saying, oh, that is the old. And it is the old. It's the old covenant. It's the old expression. It's historical. And, and there's very little in the Old Testament that we are going to identify as prescriptive until, what does that mean, something that we must follow? Until the apostles in the New Testament say that we should follow it. <laughs> you see? You see? And, when they, and then when they do say we should follow it, then they give us the parameters and the boundaries by which we follow it. So there's a really huge movement, and it's been around as long as I've been alive, that people like to get into the position to where we want to be so biblical, we're going to follow the laws. We're going to follow the rules. We're going to follow the festivals. We're going to follow all the things that Israel had to follow. Paul has something to say about that in the context of the churches of the region of Galatia. Matter of fact, that's the first recorded letter that Paul ever wrote, and it's hot under the collar. How dare you, who have been sanctified by the Spirit, want to continue to grow and be sanctified in the flesh? You don't follow these things. And so, it's funny for us to look back to the Old Testament, but it, but it is a back. It's back in the book, it's back in the pages. it's back in time. But all of this is back in time, but it has a present relevance. It has a present relevance, not culturally, and not one for one it has a present present relevance in the gospel as it relates to us in which we in the time in which we live it's funny that oftentimes we think that the old days seemed purer they didn't they just didn't talk about it everything was behind closed doors I mean growing up in this area we learned not to speak about anything. We learned not to speak about financial stuff. We learned not to speak about marriage. We learned not to speak about our job or how much we made. We learned not to speak about, you know, politics unless it was like hoorah uh, for the older folks. We learned not to be honest about our feelings. We learned all sorts of things. Why? Because there, especially here in the southeast, there's this bougie line of baloney that just sort of ran from like the days of being at court and the lords and the ladies. And you had to dress a certain way. You know that's where dressing up for assembly came from, is trying to stay focused on social status. And nowadays, I mean, I know the brands. I mean, heck, you can spend $6,000 on a pair of blue jeans if you're dumb enough. So God's best ain't good enough until you spend the most. I mean, where, where does it stop, you see? The same thing is true. We've learned a lot of things in our life about conduct, about everything else. And, beloved, we need to listen to the Bible in a pure sense and in a slow way. If you come to conclude today in the teaching, you know, there's this thing in my life that I need to work on, then take a year or more. Quit saying, next Friday, I'm never going to cuss again. Ding dang it. I mean, you know, it's just not going to work. Like, don't worry so much about pressing yourself out of the wine press. The imagery of a wine press is about wrath, not about liberty, not about freedom. And what I just said is not a license for you to just live the way you want to live. But, beloved, in the economy of grace, there's nothing going to bankrupt us if we do. Except that our soul and our mind and our lives will be empty and void. Because it is not grateful to the Lord to live in a manner unworthy of the call that God has given us. And we know it. It hurts us. But let it hurt us because of our love for God. Not because of the esteem that we wish others would see in us. It doesn't matter. What other people think of you and your Christian faith is none of your business. What people think of you, period, is none of your business. Don't give them free rent in your brain. Charge them something. (laughs) The economy's rough. Get some money. So in this sanctification, in this sacrificial blood of this new covenant, in Hebrews chapter 9 we see, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And there's a lot. I, I, I talk quickly through. I did a reading. I think I did a Wednesday night reading through Hebrews. But Christ's sacrificial blood as this new covenant. We take the Lord's table at the end. There's two things that we do in the context of the Lord's table every single week. And that is we remind, we taste The stuff, we feel it in our bodies, it goes into our bodies, we we absorb some type of substance, whether it be wine, or juice, or bread, or whatever, styrofoam, I don't know what it is, and we. but we can experience it. There's a somatic experience there, it's touch, it's taste, it's feel. And then with our minds, we do what Christ told us to do, we remember, we remember, do this. And do it so that you can remember me. We'll say, in remembrance, we don't talk about that. Remember me when you do this. Think of me when you do this. So we think of Christ. We think of who he is and what he accomplished and, and whose we are in him and, and all of that. The good report of Christ, which we now call the gospel. The good report. It's literally what it means. And so we got the good report of Christ, we're remembering, but because we remember Christ, we're remembering Christ in the fullness of what he's talking about. This is my body broken, this is my blood spilled, so we need to always be remembering the sacrificial system and the law and justice so that in that right perspective we learn righteousness by grace. Sanctification by the Spirit, not the flesh. See, that's the point there. God has done the setting apart. How, is that How could God set apart someone who deserves to go to jail? Because Christ took jail. Somebody deserves to die. Christ took death. Sprinkling of His blood. That's whole relationship here. But the second part of what we do every single week, and what I need to emphasize more, I do it, but y'all, I preach way ahead. I'm probably down... The page somewhere. I mean, I saw some stuff I said last week that it's not even for until next week's sermon, because it's just the way it works in my head. Okay, and I'm sorry. Take what you can, throw out the rest. But we get to a place where. I don't emphasize it enough in the Lord's table. And that is the second part that we see the instruction. We saw the story of the the Lord's table. We saw the story of what Jesus said. But that's not the institution to the church. That's the story in the Gospels. That's for us to read and go, wow, that happened. That's amazing. And then the apostles come along and write letters to instruct the church to say, now that you know the story, what difference does it make and what are you supposed to do with it? Let's apply this story. And so the application of the story in several ways of correction and instruction and exhortation, is that the Lord's table is not only an opportunity to remember the grace of the Lord for us individually, but more importantly, for us collectively. And because of us collectively, by the blood of Christ, we need to make sure in our heart of hearts that we hold no ill will and animosity toward each other in the church, in our homes. Now, I'm going to say that again. When we take the Lord's table and we remember what Christ has done, we have a spiritual option to to let people free of the bondage of unforgiveness. Now, I'll say this too, because it begs the question, it doesn't mean people are not responsible and accountable for what they do and say. It doesn't mean that there aren't consequences, but loving and forgiving comes from the cross. Does that make sense? And it's so, yeah, yeah, just forgive. I mean, that is just like saying, why don't you just grow six inches? Come on, kid. You're, You're three. Why aren't you five foot tall yet? What's wrong with you? Just grow. You can't. You can't just, it has to be cultivated. And we talked about that last week and the week before Just listen, I'm trying to share with you how to cultivate these things and these disciplines. And I'm doing so because I am also learning how to cultivate these disciplines. The worst thing you could ever do when you look at me is to think I've got it all together. It's a lot of work by God to have me stand up here every week. And I don't hide behind the desk of theological studies to make you think that I'm somewhere else. So, where does this sacrificial blood, what's it all mean? Why is it important? Now, we could spend several weeks just unpacking this, but for today, let's just get an overview. In the garden, we see at the fall of Adam and Eve. And you understand who is to blame for that fall and who is the one who caused it all is Adam. Eve was never blamed. She was a victim of temptation. And she rightfully and willfully disobeyed, just like Adam did. It was Adam's guard. It was Adam's duty. This is a picture, beloved. This is a picture. And then they were naked and ashamed. How shameful. How terrible. Goodness. So what they did is they covered themselves with their own provision. They found leaves and they covered their nakedness because they were ashamed to see the Lord Jesus naked. And so God came in and did his thing and showed his curse and showed the outcome, the weird and terrible outcome of such a thing. The constant labor, the deconstruction of the world, the the death of the body, the sexism of men wanting to rule over women and the frustration of women wanting to rule over men and the pain of raising children, the pain of having children. I mean, you look at it. Daggone snakes lost their legs. A lot of stuff. And if you want to know the theological exposition of Genesis 1 through 3, I preached on that a year or so ago. It's on the church website. And I'm open to discuss it. (laughs) I'm open to discuss it. So God slays something. He kills something. And by the blood, by the death, see the wages of sin is death. So something dies. And in this sense, in the tabernacle of the Garden of Eden, whatever, a lamb dies. And the, 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 the skin of that animal is used to make garments to cover the guilt and the shame. Nothing wrong with their nakedness. It's the shame behind it. It's the guilt behind it. And I'm going to, I'm just going to leave that there. I'm not telling y'all what I'm doing. Because it may not happen. So now we see that the shed blood of something else covers the guilt of someone else. Or the shed blood of that person has to pay for the guilt. You shall not die. You won't die. You'll be like God. See, that's the truth. You will be like God. You will know good and evil as soon as you eat this. It was not a lie. It was a deception. It was deeper than a lie. It was a truth bathed in candy corns and unicorns and popcorns and everything else that you might like that has to do with corn. And that's not the only time we see that. Death, the sprinkling of blood we see in Abel, Genesis chapter 4, just one chapter over. Everything happened so fast in Genesis. <laughs> one chapter over. And we got Cain and Abel. And we see, as a matter of fact, I might have taught this in the last year too as well. But we see this these brothers and we see this sacrificial system. We see that whatever you do, God had required. We don't know all the details about it until we start getting into uh, Moses. But we started to see that in some sense there was a way of always remembering what God had done by sacrificing that lamb and promising the true one, the seed of the woman, the giver of life. And through the woman alone would come the Savior who would crush the head of the serpent who caused all this mess to start with. And the ultimate cause is God and His sovereign will. So, Cain and Abel, they're following the regulations of worship, and they're offering what they have as a sacrifice to God, as an offering to God. And God does not accept Cain. So Cain's sacrifice is moot. And we can debate that all we want. We can talk, well, what's this? What were they thinking? What's about this? I mean, was it... Did he leave some vegetables out? I mean, did God not like Capricorns? I don't know. I'm just telling you that the Bible says God didn't have favor for Cain, but God had favor for Abel. Just like God didn't have favor for many people and had favor for others. Just like Jesus healed the one cripple and left 900 and something other ones to just sit there. But what does Cain do? It's not acceptable, Cain, if you would just obey. If you would just walk in a manner like I've shown you, it, you'll be acceptable. Be humble, Cain. And Cain took that as a way of hardening. And in God's providence, in God's purpose, in God's sovereignty, and in God's power, he purposed it this way. But Cain is a murderer. He murdered his brother in his heart long before he hit him with whatever he hit him with. And so in an attempt to make face, he goes to feel better, to establish himself. He goes out, sort of like Joseph, right? His brothers hated him. Jesus, his people hated him. So he goes out and he kills his brother Abel. And the Bible, oh goodness, it's just so hard not to just sit and pull a chair up and just sit here and just talk about this for days. But the Bible says that the blood of Abel cries out from the ground. Cries out for vengeance. Cries out for justice. And it puts that in comparison to the blood of Christ that is greater than the blood of Abel that testifies not for justice but it testifies justice is served you see the difference like moses as the lawgiver as the death bringer and jesus the life giver the shackle breaker the sheach messiah that's the whole thing and the anointed one of god is to set his people free not bind them up we see the same sacrificial system in the context of Abraham taking this son, not Ishmael, which was also his son, whom he loved, taking Isaac to the mountain to be sacrificed. And Isaac didn't know it. That's Genesis 22. And in this text, it's hard for me to read the narrative there when I'm in a good state of just really being aware and and, and present in the word without truly being struck at my heart and being emotional feel the lump in my throat. Because I see the point of God's purpose and Christ in it, the sacrificial system where God has created a people for himself and the means through which he will justly forgive them without costing them anything. And he will prepare a way for them when they can't find the way for themselves. And as they run into the fire of destruction, he will swoop them up in the wind of affection, and He will bring them out to a place where they will eat with Him and dine with Him and have intimacy with Him. Forever. Out of the pig pen, Luke 15, with a name and a robe and an inheritance that wasn't even yours, because you blew yours. (laughs) And several times Isaac asked, Hey, dad, what are we going to kill when we get up there? What are we going to burn? And Abraham said, Son, the Lord will provide a sacrifice for his burnt offering. (laughs) Paul writes to the Hebrews. He writes to the Hebrews. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. When he went out, he did so not knowing. And this man, good as dead, etc. And he goes on to say in verse 17 of chapter 11 of Hebrews, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named Isaac. Abraham considered that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead which figuratively speaking he did receive him back mm. And it doesn't stop there we see the superiority of the sacrificial system as it came into the world through Moses the establishment of the precepts of all of the regulations over and over again. We see it. The Levitical system, the law given on Mount Sinai, which actually Paul has something to say about that in Hebrews chapter 12. And as the people of the Lord had just been miraculously saved at the Passover, which the Passover was what? It cost blood. In every home that, whether they believed it or not, if there was blood on their doorpost, they did not die. No matter how strong, no matter how fearful, no matter how weak, no matter how cynical, they did not die. If there was blood on their doorpost, they did not die. For the blood is the one thing through which we escape justice. And I think we need to start equating wrath with justice when we talk about the gospel. We escape righteous justice because of the blood. I don't even know who told this story one time, but they personified a couple of hypothetical people in the days of the exodus in Egypt. Let's just say these two men and they're talking as they're getting these buckets of blood ready and they're standing outside their houses and they're jawing about it. And one's all excited about the idea, you know, I can't believe the Lord's going to save us this way. This is so beautiful. This is so amazing. I'll just blah and all this kind of stuff. And the other one's like, man, this is ridiculous. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of in my life. It's just nonsense. What is wrong with Moses? Moses is crazy. I mean, he's already walking around with a stick, acting like he's some wizard or something. I mean, he's all He's crazy. And I just don't believe this garbage, and I'm, I mean I'm going to do it. I you know, I'm not I'm not that dumb, but I'm just. I'll see you in the morning. No angel going to kill all these babies. And the very next morning, the questions posed in this in this comparison: Which one of those two households wept over the death of their firstborn? And the answer is neither of them. It's not about us. It's about the blood of Christ. The Mosaic law and the Passover. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I, God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. It's important to understand too that I guarantee you that a large number of Egyptians put blood on their doors to. Had you just seen rivers turn to blood, locusts, plagues, frogs, livestock dying, fire coming from heaven, darkness? And then that dumb old wizard comes out and says, okay, I'm going to kill all your children, unless you put blood on your door. There's a lot of bloodied Egyptian doors that night. But there were a lot who also didn't. In Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, is established. The scriptures say, this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. All of these pictures And then since Moses and all the way through Malachi, we have a group of individuals who are continually what? Talking and telling people and reminding them about the covenant of God, the promises of God. We have Isaiah, we have Malachi, we have Jeremiah, they're called the prophets. And these prophets speak about sacrifices. The prophets bring in not just the eternal salvific message of the sacrifices, but also the temporal benefit of the sacrifices. Some of these conditional things, like if you do this, then I'll do this. If you do that, then I'll do this, God says. If you follow me in this way, you'll prosper. If you don't, you're going to starve. Why would God do that? We see it. We see why God did it, to show that even when Humanity had it all in their hands possible. They still couldn't produce it. You cannot produce righteousness, beloved. If the perfect people walking in... I mean, can you imagine walking with Jesus with everything that you could ever need, life, if they couldn't muster the discipline to resist the flesh? How can we? When I emphasize and beat the drum of faith and hope being rest, it's because the Scripture teaches that. And beloved, when we rest, we're not working. The harder we work to satisfy God, the worse we are. And the deeper we rest in the satisfaction of God, the greater our works will be. The greater our love will be. The greater our obedience will be. And we'll be able to see what John talks about in his first letter, when it says, "The law of God is not laborious for the believer." It's not laborious. The Prophets. Psalm 51. David, I mean, this is his confession song. I got a new song for you today. Beloved. It's the song of my confession. Let's sing it together. Stand. Psalm 50. I mean, could you imagine? Now, what does David say? He says, you do not, you will not delight in sacrifice. Because if you did, I'd give it to you. If you wanted me to kill something, I'd do it. you not be pleased with the burnt offering, though, God. But the sacrifices that you do want, what is pleasing to you, is a contrite heart, a broken spirit. Oh, God, please don't despise me. Now, see, David was authentic, he was the king and he didn't care what people thought of him in the context of what he was feeling. He didn't play politics with his mouth. He played politics with other things. He played politics trying to hide his guilt. At the cost of his dearest friend so he could look the hero. But when it came to his authenticity in his writing and his poeticness, no I mean he just he was honest. He whined and complained and cried and prayed. Take note, beloved, you can't pretend, you can't posture before the Father who knows the innermost parts of you. And if we'd stop posturing before one another, I think we'd be closer than we've ever been. And I think that also needs to start at home with our spouses and with our children. We need to be honest. In Isaiah 53, we see the prophecy of Christ. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Because we are sprinkled with the blood of Christ, out of that foundation, we are able to love and obedience. And when we can't, out of the next foundation, we are set apart already by the Spirit. Well, What can I do to be set apart? You can't because God has set you part, apart as an elect child who He loves before the foundation of the world. See, that's how you preach it backwards. That's next week's sermon, by the way, to show the triune God. Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. His death is the point of all of it. The final. John the Baptist, John chapter 1, verse verse 29, 30, somewhere in there. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Remember this guy, right? John the Baptist. If there was anybody who had bad fashion or poor manners, or terrible etiquette, it was John the Baptist, born from a priest, a family of priests, and ended up being this weird guy that you would try to not give a dollar to at the filling station. I saw a meme some time ago by a, some famous pastor. I had a drawing rendition of John the Baptist it says, "This is what a real man looks like." In comparison to somebody else wearing like a coat and a bow tie or something. I'm like, yeah, sure. That's just what we need to do in the body of Christ. John the Baptist was a nobody. So when he's like, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And he started having people follow after his teaching and he was baptizing them. The authorities couldn't care less because that's quack. These a quack, there, a quack, all of them a quack, quack, old McDonald. Here we are. We've got it. It's a farm of nut jobs. But when Jesus was baptized, see, they went and they inquired about John, the Pharisees, who are you and why? What authority do you have to baptize? He said, There's not my authority. One comes after me that is before me. I'm not even worthy to clean his sandals off. In other words, I'm not worthy to wash his feet as a slave. I'm not worthy to take off his shoes. He's going to baptize with fire. Watch out. Bugs in his mouth. I mean, you know. They're like, yeah, okay. But when the lamb showed up. I want you to think about it for a second. Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the King, Jesus is the God of glory, but He is known in the Bible by His design as the Son of Man, the human man, and the Lamb of God, and the Son of God. The Lamb of God kept silent. Because his purpose was to die. His purpose was to die, not just to show the way as a martyr, but to die as a payment for justice. Because it is unjust for God to just say, That's okay. I know you've done wrong, and you've violated the law, and you've violated righteousness. It's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. It's wrong. It's evil for anyone in justice to say, That's okay. It's not evil for us to forgive because we've been forgiven. And it's not evil for God the Father to forgive because Christ paid it all. I know we know this stuff, beloved. But Peter is very clear. This is, the, this is not like a nugget. This isn't the cherry on top of this thing. This is the structure. This is the architectural foundation. The skeletal structure of this entire letter if we're hanging sheetrock on the wall every stud is the gospel of grace and it's filled with the insulation of God's sovereignty let's keep doing construction metaphors how many you got Last Supper, as I've already mentioned, this is my blood, the covenant, the new promise, the new contract. This is the point of everything. This is the reason the world exists, so that you would understand the freedom that you have in me for what I'm about to do for you. And the, Peter, it's like, no, sir, Rebob. you're not washing my feet. No, you don't have to die. No, you're not getting arrested, chopping ears and stuff. Peter, your zeal is misplaced, brother. I'll die with you, Jesus. Hell, whatever. You're going to deny me three times before you hear the rooster crow. Before the sun comes up. Never. And not only was it denial, he cursed Christ. Feed my sheep. When Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down At the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 1. Therefore now, Hebrews chapter 9, He is the mediator of a new promise, of a new contract, of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance. Since death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first contract. Because we are cleaned by the blood of Christ, we seek to follow after Christ in His way. Because we've been set apart and called by the Father in the Spirit. And as I've said in the beginning, this covenant is yes, for me personally and for you individually, but the essence of it is for us collectively. And I think that's something else because we do need to reflect. We do need some intrinsic work. We do need to consider and be aware of who we are and what we're doing in this world. We do need to take time out, take care of our needs, and love ourselves so that we can love others also the way we love ourselves. But when we lose sight of the fact that it is us, we worship Christ, we will be together in eternity. There'll be no isolation booths in in the new world. We won't need them. We won't have social disorders. We won't have ADD. We won't have any of these problems. We won't be obsessed with perfection. It'll already be perfect. And I smile because I'm not so sure that I can see that. It might be perfect because I don't have a role in it. But it's hard to envision. It's just so silly to envision perfection. But the death of Christ transforms us. To be a people for His glory. To the praise of His glorious grace. See, when you see Paul write, and when you see James write, you see John write, you see all these apostles write their letters... They're not saying anything different. There's no conflict there. It's all about the response that we have as children of God to the love of God for us. And that response is to Him because of what He's done for us. But that response is for others also. And I want you to hang on that for a minute as we close out our service. I want you to hang on that for a second as you go home. I want you to think about that tomorrow when you get up for work or whatever it is that you have to do, whether you're working at home or or out in the market. I want you to embrace that on Tuesday when we're traveling or when you're dealing with somebody. I want you to be mindful on Wednesday of the fact that the gospel of grace is yours, beloved, because of the love of God for you. Therefore, that is the funnel, the filter, the, the fuel through which our lives are supposed to be lived. And Thursday, I want you to pray for me because I haven't done it at all. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And so I'm going to be frustrated because Sunday's coming. Friday, you yah Oh, I haven't done laundry. I haven't cut the grass. We haven't washed the car. Whatever comes up. Dog's got a splinter, kid breaks an arm. I don't know. No matter what happens, good, bad, or indifferent, let's be mindful of the gospel. Get into those disciplines I talked about last week of prayer and reading the Word. Looking for opportunity. Asking God to open your hearts. To serve others. Because the Christian life is not about transforming the culture. Establishing a national kingdom, or promoting some generalized sense in which evangelicalism takes over everything. The Christian life is not about just doing church on Sunday and having a Bible study. Those are small, teeny, the first things I preach are not even part of our lives. But these last two things I mentioned are small parts of a large time frame of 168 hours a week. And incrementally, these small little opportunities that we have, we need to be living Christ-filled lives by considering what He's done for us. And in that consideration, the flow of the Spirit of God's work, the work that He had prepared beforehand for us to walk in, we'll walk into our lives and afterwards we'll go, wow, look what the Lord did there. We don't have to hunt it. We don't have to seek it. We don't have to make it. We just have to be. I hope, that un- I hope you understand that us pray as we prepare for the table father we are glad to be able to come and worship and hear your word and think about these things in a way that is not inhibited Lord. that you've fully given us understanding lord help us to walk help us to 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 walk with ourselves and with those close to us in a loving way and do so because of what christ has done Father, as we grow in those disciplines, Lord, take us out to the wider world in which we live. Lord, I pray for those who are not able to be here with us this morning because so many are sick, so many are ill, so many are just not well. Some are troubled. But Father, put in their hearts for them to be in touch with us so that we do not worry and labor. And we thank you, Father, when we hear from our brothers and sisters in the faith that we are So glad that we can rejoice and we thank you for it. For you get the praise and the glory. Help us to spend our time in these things. And as we take the table this this morning, Father, help us to remember these things. In Jesus' name, amen.